Glad to have Ryan with us. Go ahead and give him a conscious welcome. Remember that he has left his church and sisters this week to be with us. So take notes, laugh at all of his jokes, right? Even if they're lame, just like you do for Brett all the time. Okay? <laughs> laugh at all of his jokes. Thank you, Ryan, for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm not funny, but I am f funnier than Brett. That is for sure. Um, I brought my own laugh track. My friend Mike here from Sisters, my chauffeur, and my uh, mobile laugh track. So um, thanks for coming, Mike. I love the local church and just being with you guys this morning and being in this space with you guys, hanging out with Michael. I'm just like, I love the local church. I love the expressions of the local church. I love seeing people that have been at our church and sisters that are here now. And it's just a good thing. So thanks for having me this morning. Happy to be here. Uh, let's pray. And then let's, let's talk. Open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful and beautiful things from your word, God. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the power and in the authority of the true Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. Move us out of sullenness and critical spirits that criticize self and others and move us into the vision of the kingdom, salt and light. God, may your kingdom come in Redmond. We've been praying for it and sisters, but God, as I'm here this morning, Please, Holy Spirit, strengthen this church. For Brett and Jessica and the kids, give them that Sabbath reality, that internal peace that comes in being still and knowing that you are God. Do immeasurably more than we could ask, think, or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen. I knew Brett was shorter, but my goodness, it's like, Let's get this thing up a little bit. Well, that's okay. Right, here we go. Uh, we're going to open our Bibles to Matthew 16. We're going to look at that text this morning. Um, as we open that, I want to remind you guys of a very famous uh, historical lesson that happened actually in Vietnam with an admiral that was captured as a prisoner of war, a POW. His name was Admiral Stockdale. And as a prisoner of war who lived and actually thrived <laughs> as a POW and made it out, he actually has a principle named after him. It's called the Stockdale Paradox. And the Stockdale Paradox is a technique, it's a mentality, it's a, it's a way of disciplining your mind to navigate challenging and ambiguous times by doing two paradoxical things at the same time that can internally strengthen the individual or the group to make it through even the worst of times, in his case, captured by the Vietnam Army. And in the Stockdale Paradox, you've got to hold on to two things simultaneously. Number one, you have to confront the brutal facts that you currently face. You can't sugarcoat how difficult, how hard, or how challenging the actual moment that you're living in is. And you must simultaneously have an unwavering faith 
that as you persist in the difficulty, that you will prevail in the end, no matter how distant and how difficult the journey will be. And what was really interesting is the people that didn't survive the the camp were too optimistic. We'll be out by Christmas. Christmas comes, and you're celebrating New Year's in your cell. Guess what you do? Lose heart. But the people that were too pessimistic never had hope that things would change. And so G.K. Chesterton, the great Christian thinker and author, makes this profound statement about courage. He says, courage is a contradiction in terms. Courage, by definition, is a strong desire to live with a readiness to die. He says, if you're stuck in the woods, surrounded by a militia, if you don't believe you can get out, you're going you're gonna to certainly die because they're going to find you. He says, the only way to survive is to constantly step within an inch of death. Strong desire to live with a readiness to die. And the reason I want to start here before we go to the text this morning is I think we're in a moment, both probably this local church, I know our local church and sisters, I've talked to a lot of pastors, I've talked to a lot of people. The last few years have been very difficult, haven't they? Let's just start with the bad news, okay, before we get to the good news. Bad news. We have global atrocities happening in Ukraine. We have probably the most polarized political moment that we've ever faced as an American nation. We have fighting and rage. People can't even listen to each other anymore, right? Oh, and by the way, the the word of the year, according to, I think it was Webster's in 2016, the word of the year that was to frame up the moment we were in was the word post-truth. We're in a post-modern moment. Truth is no longer objective, it's subjective. Tell me about how you feel. School shootings are on an unparalleled rise. And, oh yeah, we've had COVID and COVID 2.0 and monkeypox, whatever that is, and fights about shots and boosters. Besides that, things are going great. (laughs) What about the church? Well, I can tell you our evangelical moment isn't much prettier. Churches, by and large, in the moment we're living in, are actually dying. 4,500 churches closed last year. 3,000 started. We're going backwards 1,500 a year, which is, according to my math, about five a day. I saw as a pastor that COVID became an accelerator for those that wanted to start their deconversion. I've seen many people leave the church. The fastest growing religious affiliation group is what they call the nuns. Not the N-U-N kind of nun. The N-O-N-E-S nuns. We want none of it. It's the fastest growing. By the way, that's still a religion and a worldview. Barna says that upwards of 75% of all young people will leave the church during their college years. Churches and church leaders face incredible discouragement. And by the way, we live in a moment where it's no longer advantageous to have a Christian worldview, but it's met with hostility. 
Used to be a day where if you said, you know, I'm a Christian businessman, it'd get you more business. Now it's going to get you in a fight. It used to be tolerance. Now it's actually aggressive and vitriol cancellation and cancel culture. And by the way, the church isn't doing itself any favors with abuse and scandals in the church. This is the moment of the paradox that we got to figure out from Admiral Stockdale. We are pressed. We need to be honest about the moment we're living in. And then we need to have a resolve and an optimism that things can get better and they will get better. It won't do us any good in this moment as the church to pretend we're doing better than we are. It won't do us any good to pretend that, oh, the, the, the culture is really open to the exclusivity and the exclusive claims of Jesus. It won't do us any good to Pollyannaize our theology in the moment we're in. We need a ruthless, honest assessment about the moment, and we need a word of revelation spoken by someone with the authority to do something about it that can lead us strong desire to live, readiness to die, so we become that church that has a prophetic word. And by the way, when the prophetic word comes in the Gospels, it always comes crying out in the wilderness. It's always from the unlikely one. It's always from the margins. And so I think this is the moment. We've lost the political power as evangelicals. It's the moment where we're marginalized. This is the great moment for the people of God. Let's read the scripture. Sound good? Oh, by the way, um, Michael's like, you got 25 minutes. Um, That was my intro. Just let me know when you're like, you, when you guys are like, you're done, just someone wave and say, you're done, okay? We'll take, a, we'll take it over to Westside Taco, whoever wants to go deeper, okay? <laughs> Matthew 16, here we go. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? By the way, that's the question. That's the question. That's the question all of us got to wrestle with. That's the question. We shouldn't be asking all these other questions about your moral vision. We, we don't start there. We don't start with mor- The gospel's not due. The gospel's done. We start with the identity of Jesus. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, great, who do you say that I am? I love it. Jesus goes just laser focus. Let's just go with, let's get a consensus on public opinion about my identity. Peter's like, that's a great conversation. And then he's like, no, no, no. Who do you say that I am? Oh, kind of on the spot now, huh? Peter replies, you are the Christ. Messianic identity. The guy that, you know, the whole Old Testament talks about. I don't want to unhitch my Jesus from the Old Testament. The Jesus story doesn't make sense. The Christ is a messianic title from Genesis 3 onward. The snake-crushing king. The long-awaited guy who's going to reset the world. The guy that's going to bring the kingdom of God to earth. That God-man, that Isaiah 53, Messiah. You are him. 
You are the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And, so, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barzona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I want to make five observations. Some of these are going to be longer. Some are going to be quick. I want to make five observations about the church from this text. Number one, it tells us the conditions and the context for Jesus's ecclesia. Okay. Number two, it tells us what Jesus is doing. Number three, it tells us who he's doing it through. Number four, it tells us who the enemy and the opposition is. And number five, finally, it tells us how Jesus' method is going to unpack into the church. Okay, so number one, uh, this text tells us the conditions. And you go, well, what do you mean by that? I want to show you two observations. And if you're trucking through your Bible, read through, and trying to get, you know, eight chapters a day, you might not make this observation. So I'm going to point it out to you. And then I want to say, why did Matthew include these details? Okay? So the first thing I want to show you is right before the church is announced, there's a warning from Jesus. Do you guys see back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 5? He says in verse 6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay. Matthew could have put these stories in any order, Matthew edits his gospel and organizes his stories in such a way that he creates a contrast. Beware of this, and here's the description of everything that you're to be aware of. Instead, I'm building this. Do you guys see that contrast? Okay. What is he doing? He's saying this. His community of people is not primarily dead orthodoxy and religion. The church as behavior modification is a bad hobby. He wants to do something very different than the Pharisees and Sadducees that want to try and do moral reformation. Jesus wants to do spiritual transformation. Okay? So the first warning that he's going to warn us about how he builds his church is he's going to say, it's in between this religion, but the second thing he's going to contrast it with, and this is a different detail. So the first detail is the, is the contrast in order. The second detail is a really interesting one in verse 13. Matthew makes a point about where he goes to make this announcement. When you're reading your Gospels, pay attention to settings. They're not meaningless. Verse 13, he came to the district of where? Caesarea Philippi. Okay, you don't have to be a linguist to uh, make a connection. Caesarea, what does that sound like? He's going to go to the secular capital of the world. Caesar's the guy who wants to be the image of God. He's created up a false worldview, one where he becomes God. 
Does that sound like our moment at all we're living in right now? My buddy, uh, Justin, sent me this text, and I said, Justin, I'm going to quote you. Um, he's a lay theologian. He's a coffee guy at Sister's Coffee. But for a lay theologian, I thought this was good. He said, he says, this is the moment we're in. I said, Justin, I'm quoting you. He says, man is God. The state is Savior. Our culture and social media is the Holy Spirit. And our polarized news is, quote, the word. Welcome to Karl Marx's dream. Jesus plants his church in between religion and secularism. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing this. I'm doing the creative third way. So he goes to the place of Caesarea Philippi. By the way, really interesting, if you go to Ephesians 2, don't have time to do this right now, uh, Paul makes an announcement to the church in Ephesus. And he actually says to the, to the church in Ephesus, he says, you are the temple. It's one of the metaphors of the church. He does the same thing. He goes to the place where the seventh wonder of the world is, the temple to Artemis. And behind the backdrop of all the human pride, it's Babylon 2.0, he says, nope, not that. You, small group, you're the temple. You're the place where the spirit dwells. And so Jesus goes to the secular capital of the world, the birthplace of all these false gods, the place where these impressive structures are, and he looks at the Pharisees and says, I'm not doing that, and he looks at secularism and says, I'm not doing that. He goes to the hot spot. It'd be like going to New York or L.A., the place of human ingenuity and human wisdom, and Jesus is doing this. He's critiquing two errors. Error number one is what I call the religious pharisaical error of the church. This error is that the church becomes a place that evaluates and looks down at culture, where you just come and critique. And by the way, let me just say, this is really easy to do. There's a lot of material. I love what John Tyson says. He says, the gospel wants to do inner conviction before it moves to external critique. And in this era, the, the thought in the main worldview is we're the good guys and all the bad guys are out there. Come be a part of our thing so you can look down at everybody else. But era number two, and it's very potent in the church, is what I call syncretism or assimilation. We become culture. We mirror culture's values. We don't have any distinctions. And remember what Jesus says about salt when it loses its saltiness? It's good for what? Nothing. In fact, I think it was in Luke's gospel I just read this week. Like Luke, Matthew says it's good for nothing. Luke's gospel goes even further. It's like, it's not even, it can't even help the manure pile. I'm like, that's the heavy handed Jesus. Oh my gosh. Right? And so what's the church to be then? It's the creative third way. It's the spot where the kingdom of God, this is the expression. What is God doing on earth for heaven's sake? The local church. Take a good look around. It ain't that sweet, huh? This is it. And so what is, what is the purpose of coming together? How are we to think about assimilation? How are we to think about 
distinction, how we should think about being relevant to our culture, I want to read you a long quote from James Smith. Buckle up, here we go. He says this, worship together, the Sunday morning gathering, it needs to be characterized by hospitality, it needs to be inviting, but at the same time, the gathering of God's people should be inviting seekers into the church's unique story and language. He says worship actually should be an occasion for cross-cultural hospitality. Consider this analogy. When I travel to France, I hope to be welcome. I hope to feel welcome. However, I don't expect my French hosts to become Americans in order to make me feel at home. I don't expect them to start speaking English, ordering pizza, and talking about the New York Yankees. If I wanted that, I would have saved the money and just stayed home. Instead, what I'm hoping for is to be invited into their unique French culture. That's why I've come to France. So it is with hospitable worship gatherings. Seekers are looking for something our culture can't provide. Many don't want a religious version of what they can already get at the mall. This is especially true of the younger postmodern Gen X seekers. They're looking for elements of the transcendent gospel that MTV could never give them. So rather than just MTV eyes, the gospel on your weekend gatherings, they're actually searching for the practices of the ancient way. I've seen churches do the relevance trap. And the relevance trap leads to a church that looks a lot like the world, has the same ethics, the same values. And I've seen the churches do the pharisaical thing where it becomes a club, and both of them are not where Jesus plants his church. He does it in between, okay? Number two, it tells us what Jesus is doing in the world. Jesus is doing something right now. Right now, this morning, he's doing something. He's effectually calling some of you to ministry in your neighborhood this morning. He's raising up elders. When? Today. He's raising up ministry leaders. Like when? Now. Jesus is building his church. And here's why I think this is so important. I would say 2020 was probably the most depressing year of my adult life in ministry. All I saw was pain, loss, division, brokenness, and anger. I was screamed at in one day by the extreme right and left. One person said, if you act like COVID's real, we're leaving the church. One person said, if you guys ever meet in the next year, we're leaving the church. Uh, I was stuck between a rock, meet, hard place kind of situation. Ton of fun. Really loved it. (laughs) Jesus is doing something. And if we just go off how is everyone receiving everything today? We're going we're gonna to be bipolar. Because some of you are going to go, this is great today, and then you're going to love it, and then next week you're going to go, I didn't like that, blah, blah, blah. But if we, just, if we strip off all of our preferential wants and likes, and we say, no, what is God doing? Everyone wants to talk about what we're doing. What is God doing? God is doing something in the world. He is not leaving Babylon to all of her suicidal tendencies. God is coming to the broken world and he's actually rebuilding it. 
It's pretty bold how John starts his gospel. <laughs> three, first three words of John's gospel is what? In the beginning. John's saying this. There's a new creation story. God's writing. And new creation is coming through what? Messiah. What's Messiah doing today? He's dwelling with his people in the local assembly. And here's why this is important. If we just go with the cultural feedback or does the evangelical brand like what we're doing? Are we getting good press from our... If we just go with that, we're going to be up and down. We're going to be bipolar. But if we go with the hard fact that Jesus is doing something today and he's building his church, then what we have what I call a defiant optimism. Defiant because our culture wants you to be a pessimist. It wants you to blame everybody else. It wants you to have kind of a gray scale, white noise that everyone else is the problem. And you go around and you're pessimistic and you're angry and kind of just on the border of eruption. That's what our culture wants to form you as, by the way. Uh, Don't know if you know this, but most social media companies were built by people that built literal casinos back in the 70s and 80s. They took the same psychological principles and said, how can we get people locked into their phone the same way people got locked into casinos? They found this. The easiest emotion to mind, they're fracking you, is anger. It's hard to get people happy. Uh, Maybe every once in a while on Instagram, we'll get like a cute kitten, and you're like, oh, that's good, you know? But mostly what they're doing, all of it, is built on your rage. Your anger fuels Zuckerberg and all the clowns, okay? So what is the church to do with that? What if we had a defiant optimism? What if we said, no, God's doing something. How does he build his church, by the way? Because Peter never got over this. (laughs) If you go to 1 Peter and you read Peter's account, he says, we are what? Living stones. Built upon what? The cornerstone. This changed Peter's life. What if we said, God's doing a work and he's building, and how does he build his kingdom? One stone at a time. What's the thing God's doing? It's the lunch you're going to have after church with that brother or sister. That's what God's doing. What's God doing? It's that one connection, that one greeting you had, that one act of hospitality. Okay, number three tells us this. Who's doing it? Jesus is. I will build my church. First person, singular, possessive pronoun. And I'm not an English guy. Any English teachers want to correct me? First person, singular, possessive pronoun. I'm doing it. Who's doing the work? Not Brett. Michael's been doing a lot this morning, but not Michael. Not Ryan. Who's building the church? Jesus is. And so let's just take the pressure off. 
God's doing his work and he's building his church. And the one who's building is the one that Paul said in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created through him and for him. That's who's building the church. Number four. I'm going to keep moving here because my time's up. It tells us who the enemy in opposition is to what God is doing. Now notice it doesn't say, I will build my church and the other political party that I don't like won't prevail against it. I will build my church and that other sect of Christianity that doesn't have, you know, our beliefs, they won't prevail. No, the gates of hell won't prevail. And here's what I want to say. This tells us that we're in a fight. There should be battle weariness, friends. We're in a fight. Well, who are we fighting? Not God. God gets blamed all the time for everything. It's really interesting when I talk to atheists and agnostics. They're mad at a God that they don't think exists, and they blame him for a lot of things. Well, if he doesn't exist, why are you so mad at him? Right? (laughs) My wife rightfully blames me, but I exist. So, um, (laughs) right? God never gets the credit for anything good. The Ukraine refugees that were welcomed by Poland and by the Polish church, God gets no credit for that. God only gets blamed that Putin went in. We blame God all the time. And see, here's the thing. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants you to blame God. So you run from God instead of run to God. Go all the way back to the Genesis 3 narrative. Adam and Eve do their thing. We heard the sound of you in the garden, statement of awareness, and we are afraid. Emotion. Because we were naked, self-identity. So we hid. Action. Who told you that you were naked? Self-identity. That's where, this, that's where God wants to go with us. He wants to go to that identity. We don't want to go to the identity, so we're going to run. We're in a fight, and our fight is not that other political party. Tim Keller recently said, Jesus is far too conservative for liberals in his sexual ethic, and he's far too liberal for conservatives in his immigration policies. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Okay. <laughs> The scriptures are clear in Ephesians. Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against all the morons that are trying to change Redmond the way you don't like it. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the principalities in the present age. 1 John 3, 9, the reason the Son of God appeared was to do what? Destroy the works of the devil. And at the cross... It looked as though the snake won, but it was the blow, fatal blow to his head. Evil committed suicide at the cross. God, God oversaw all of it. Lastly, this text tells us how Jesus is doing this. He's doing this through his confessors. You are Petra, And on this 
Petros. Okay, and I just want to make a point. Uh, Catholics read this text and say, see, Peter's the first pope. Uh, that's not what the Greek says. You are Petra, Peter, and on this Petros, confession. On this, the rock is not Peter. The rock is the confession. It's the confession that is the rock. What confession? You are the Christ, the son of the living. If that's your confession this morning, you get to join Jesus. How is he doing this? Through simple confessors. But I'm not good enough. I messed up this week. Great. Can you confess that Jesus is the Christ? He can use you. And here's how this text ends. Look at this. <laughs> Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders. Great announcement. I'm building my church. Immediately, where, where am I going? Going to the cross. What's the method God's using in the world? Is it our success? Is it our perceived victory? Is it our political power? Jesus had, could have done any of those. Which, what, what's the first move we see? I'm going to suffer. That's the method of God in the world. Peter didn't really appreciate our Lord's method. He decided to correct him. Uh, correcting Jesus uh, just doesn't go well. Trust me there. So what does all this mean? Um, let me read you this quote here from Mark Sayers. He says, much of the Western church in the moment we're living in, it's operating on the kinetic forward motion of previous moves of God. It's lounging on a platform built by the service and ministry of past and passing generations. However, we're at a moment where the fuel tank is running empty. This is the, the great opportunity. And I love, the, I love reading revival history. I love Revival in the Hebrides. If you haven't read that book, read that book. It's fantastic, okay? Um, I love the history of God's move. I think the late 90s was the last like, strong move of God. I was a youth pastor, and we just saw... We, we had like 70 baptisms one, one uh, youth group night. Like, it was just incredible, right? Um, I love that. We're not in that moment. What do we do? Do we whine and critique? Do we just resolve that that was a good moment? Remember when? Oh, yeah, Ichabod, the glory was here, but it's gone and whatever. We remember, though. No. Strong desire to live, willingness to die. We're in a, we're, we are oppressed, but man, we're not crushed. We're struggling, but yeah, we're not destroyed. We're, we're caring about the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus would be manifest in us, right? So what, what, is, what is all this? Why am I talking about all this? Okay, um, I'm going to land the plane here. Oh my gosh, 25 minutes, more like 47. Here we go. <laughs> the church, this is what God is doing on earth for heaven's sake. There's a popular theology right now. It's like, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. And I want to say, eh, bad. That'd be like you saying, I love you, Ryan, but I hate your wife. Now, it would be much more probably realistic for you to say, I love your wife, but I hate you. Um, some people have told me that. Um, <laughs> Joshua Ryan Butler says this. He says, God's mission is to get the hell out of birth. And he's doing that for the church. Okay? Sayer says this, continuing to do the same things 
that are not bringing renewal is not going to bring renewal. Lack of commitment to the bride is not going to bring renewal. Business as usual is not going to bring renewal. Accumulating knowledge without putting it into practice will not bring renewal. We need our autopilot patterns interrupted. God is doing something. He's building his church. And if I can just quote you too, with or without you. Do you want to be on Team Jesus? He's doing it. I think of the prayer in Habakkuk. He see it all ruined. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Oh God, we've heard of your great name and your renown. In the midst of our years, revive it. In the midst of our life, make it known. That's the kind of fervor, that's the zeal, that's the centrality of the local church that will bring renewal. And so I just want to close by just, I want you to close your eyes for a second. I just want to ask you some questions. I want you to think about this. Imagine there's a move of the Spirit in Redmond, Oregon. (laughs) Imagine those faces you've been praying for. Imagine those young people. Imagine the Imagine Redmond High School gets touched with the Spirit. Imagine those skeptics or those angry atheists have an assault conversion. What would be happening in this church? What would that look like? What would that feel like? What would that do for you and your family and your community? What would that do for Pastor Brett? How important is that to you this morning? As we close in prayer, I want to just remind you guys that renewals happen. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards saw the great awakening. He said, in revival, God smashes a hundred years of redemptive history into a hundred days. That's what we desire, God. You're going to build your church. It's just core to who you are. It's your mission on earth. Paul rightfully taught us that the manifold wisdom of God is being made known through the church to the powers and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God, by your grace, not by our hype, not by our striving, not by our, quote, recommitment, not at all, by your grace, strengthen this church for kingdom impact in Redmond. Bring renewal. God, bring revival to the hearts of leaders. Restore the backslidden. Bring purity to the sexually broken. Bring power to the, bring power and uh, sobriety to the addicted, God. Bring healing to the marriages. Bring joy in your presence and your shalom. 
God, as we read from Proverbs, it says that this kind of person that receives instruction, it's like a tree of life. And as I read that and heard that this morning, I thought, oh my gosh, we want to be back at Neden. We want the tree of life. We want the, the ceaseless, uh, we want to be out of the ceaseless striving. We want to be out of the competing. We want to be out of the rage. We want to be out of the uh, never-ending competition. We want to be back with the triune God. So God, bring that reality to, to Redeemers, please. Father, we thank you for this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah.